This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 26. This is Writing Excuses. Broadening your writing wheelhouse. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I like to write things other than comics. Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we, that's what we're talking about today. Um, I, I've got a, a class that I teach uh, called All of the Eggs and All the Baskets that's basically about um, the time when my career stalled and I wasn't able to sell books for a solid three or four years. And then I started branching out into other things. Um, and I started working in the gaming industry, writing tie-in fiction, writing role-playing game adventures. Uh, I was a staff writer on a TV show. I have written uh, for my own movie. I have written stage. I've written all kinds of extra stuff. And we thought it would be good to take an episode today and talk about all of the things you can write that are not what we typically talk about, novels and short stories. You know, from a business perspective, I think this is a really fantastic thing to talk about. Unfortunately, one of the things that we have seen over the last 40, 50 years of publishing is a contraction in author advances. Author advances are not as large as they were in the 80s and 90s. And so when you hear about sort of mid-list authors being able to, you know, have a sustainable career delivering only novels, um, that has become less and less tenable as time goes on. Authors have needed to diversify their income. Um, and, you know, there are a number of ways to do this, especially on the literary side. A lot of people teach. But uh, in genre fiction, what most of my clients tend to do if they don't have a day job is write in lots of different formats in lots of different arenas. So sometimes that's doing an adult novel and having a young adult or middle grade career. Sometimes that's writing for video games. Sometimes that's writing comics, uh, TV and film writing also. These are all great ways to bulk out both your throughput. Other things that have happened in the, in the publishing industry means that the pace of frontless publishing has slowed down. It's now about one book every 18 months or two years it tends to be standard. So being able to fill out those gaps between your frontless novels with other income streams, whether that's comics or games or whatever, as we're discussing, that can be a really important thing to building a sustainable writing career. The skill set, and I'm going to go ahead and put a stake in the ground as, as an absolute, just so people can at me in the comments. Um, the skill set that you need for this, that if you're writing novels or short stories uh, already, is being able to say what you want to say and have the reader get what you wanted to say out of it. Because if you can do that consistently in your prose, and I mean consistently and deliberately, then you've already got the skill to begin translating that into other things that you write. You already have figured out how words worked. There's a whole bunch of other things you're going to have to learn about how to put the words on the page and, you know, which ones go in brackets and which ones go in italics and so on and so forth. But that skill saying what you want to say so that it is read the way you want it to be read 
is the key. Yeah, and I want to make sure right at the beginning uh, to point out that while I kind of framed this in terms of my own experience, I don't want to present the idea that types of writing that are not novels and short stories are somehow lesser or different or other. Uh, They're all completely valid, and there are many writers around the world that that is their entire career is only game writing or only TV writing or something like that. Uh, So don't take my personal experience as a sign that one is better or or more desirable than another. Right, and my framing is really driven by the fact that I work with primarily novelists. So that is also why I'm framing it in some other way. One thing I'll say to, to, to like writing the words and then having the reader take them in is that one of the things I often tell people when they're asking me, what's the difference between doing game writing, doing script writing is control. So one of the things that you do have a lot of when you write prose, granted, your editor may have their hands in it, your agent, whoever, but ultimately you get to control the way that people take in the content. And a lot of what writers do, I like to think, is control the way we try to use like different punctuation even to get a rhythm going. But if you're writing a script, you're going to turn it over to actors. And it's more of a collaborative medium a lot of times working in scripts. When you're dealing with a game, you can't control exactly what people do once they're within the game world. There's a whole lot of things that we talk about in game writing called emergent gameplay, which is when you think the game is about X, but mm-hmm. people decide to go off and play Y. They get obsessed with looking in random things uh, in crates for items. They go kill all the dragons in Dragon Age instead of saving the world. Or in a tabletop game, you're really turning it over to a storyteller to use the backdrop that you set up and then decide where they want to take it. And so you have to become comfortable with giving up that control. Otherwise, you will be really upset when people don't take in the story the way that you're expecting them to. Yeah, absolutely. And the flip side to that is that that uh, loss of control that you have with something like a script when you are giving it over to actors, I have found can improve the pacing of my dialogue so much because I can just have people say things without all of that extra narrative stuff that we talked about uh, in a previous episode about narrators. And sometimes that can slow down the jokes um, so that they don't land in the way that I want them to, whereas when I adapt it into a script, then it flows perfectly. We've, uh, I say we, Sandra and I have seen this um, as we've worked with uh, Schlock Mercenary Bonus Stories uh, moving from, you know, the script to uh, having someone else handle the illustration. Uh, when I script things for myself and draw them, uh, I know what I meant. When I script things for someone else, often what I have to do is is very explicitly say the, the punchline for this strip depends on the following elements, which need to be present in this panel but we don't want to telegraph the whole joke. So, you know, be, be careful about it. And that's a lot to say. And with some artists, you do have to be that explicit and say it. Similarly, you know, when you're writing, when you're writing an audio script and you have notes about what the background noise should be, it can be helpful to say, we need this background noise because we are trying to create a, a mood of normalcy that we can then put an undercurrent of suspense in later by adding something. And those sorts of notes, 
knowing knowing how to write not just to the audience as a reader, but to the audience who is a director or the audience who is an artist or the audience who is a sound designer, you as the writer need to be able to make your words say things to those people. The way I think about it frequently with writing is that it's um, that that you think of like a novel as a clear glass vessel and you can put anything into that vessel you want. And then you've got games, which is a different shape of vessel. But again, you can put anything into that vessel. So if you want to put horror into this vessel and horror into that vessel, they're two different things. But it's it's got elements of the same ingredients, right? And then the reader, when they come to it, are coming to it with their own vessels. So if I've written something that is, you know, Pinot Noir shaped and I'm serving it out of a carafe, and my intention is that it's supposed to go into a riedel. And that's going to be beautiful and lovely. But if someone comes to me with a red solo cup, they, you know, they may, st- they're still going to enjoy that Pinot, not the way I intended, but they're still going to enjoy it. And if they come to me with, uh, but but at the same time, if I have made something that's like hot apple cider, and they come to me with a Riedel, and I pour that in, that that glass is going to shatter. So one of the things that I think when you're jumping forms is that it enables you to have a broader understanding of the different ways audience interact with the media that you that you play in and you can take the tools that you learn from one into another and use those ingredients those recipes those formulas to to shape things like I came from 20 years of puppet theater preloaded with an understanding of how body language and dialogue worked and I could translate that onto the page and so I had this immediate level up. But those are like puppetry, writing for puppet stage and writing for novels, like that writing looks nothing, nothing alike. Yeah, and I think that's one of the fun things about uh, kind of giving up control a little bit and putting more of the control, I think, in a lot of formats in the audience's hands, because you learn in a different way how your writing lands and what happens. So if you give a line to an actor and they interpret it in a way you didn't anticipate, sometimes they interpret it in a way and you're like, wow, that actually was a stronger choice. And why didn't I think of that? And how could I think of that in the future? Or if you, one of the things I did when I, when Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel was out is I watched actual plays of people playing my adventure to Hmm. see where are their commonalities? Where are there things that I wrote that everyone incorporated into their gameplay session? Where were there things that people sort of decided that they needed to work around? And then I can take that in and learn and be a better writer for the next adventure because I'm seeing where things are showing up in actual people's tables when they're playing. I do that with uh, reviews. I read my five-star reviews and I read my four-star reviews because the four-star reviews, I have to be in the right mood, to be clear. <laughs> Uh, I have to be in in a healthy frame of mind. But the four-star reviews are gold because these are people for whom it almost everything worked. And there's one thing that didn't. And if I can spot a pattern in that, that's a pattern that I can iterate on. And it it also, again, helps when I jump from one form, from one medium to another. It's like, oh, this is a thing. And it's clear now why it's a problem. Like jumping from short story to novel, I rush my endings. Let's take a pause here. And when we come back, I want to talk more about this because it's fascinating. Our thing of the week this week is uh, a TV show that the rest of you all saw it last year. I only just came to it and watched it and loved it, which is Severance. 
Uh, this is one of the best science fiction TV shows that I've seen in a very long time. The basic premise of this is that there is a corporation that's come up with the technology to bifurcate your memory. And so when you are outside of the office, you have one set of memories. And when you are inside of the office, you have a completely different set, which effectively splits you into two people. And they use this not only as like a corporate workplace dystopian satire, but also just a really compelling story about uh, grief and trauma, about um, kind of group dynamics and politics. Uh, it is a slow burn story, but even in the slow parts, it is completely compelling and builds towards the end of the first season is one of the best hours of TV that I've seen in ages. I love this framing of talking about writing in these other formats as sort of changing the way the audience participates in the storytelling. Um, but it, it, there's a, another way in which it doesn't fundamentally change things. Uh, one of my clients and very good friends, uh, Amal El Motar, talks about writing as an act of hospitality. Mm -hmm. When you write a novel, when you write a story, you're inviting your audience into the space that you've created. And you're collaborating with them to create an understanding. Um, for me, I love watching actual play TV shows. I love GMing uh, tabletop games, you know. And so, as Aaron was saying, I find that that has improved me as an editor because it lets me make more space for the audience and how they're reacting and interpreting what's on the page. You know, a novel is a little bit more about control, but you still, you know, going back to the to the metaphor of the vessels as well. You know, your reader is an empty vessel as well. You need to figure out. How am I signaling to them what they should be bringing to this table to properly receive what you've created for them? And I think I love this idea of hospitality because I think part of if you're switching from format to format is much like moving from one person's house to another. Mm -hmm. What might be a lovely act of politeness in one place doesn't work as well in the other. Uh, one of the big lessons that I learned when I first started writing for Tabletop coming from short fiction is that if you want to make your world feel bigger in a short story, sometimes you'll just throw a detail in that you're never going to follow up on. You'll be like, oh, yes, like when we came through the purple door, but like that doesn't, it's not a part of the story. It's just to make the world um, feel wider. But when you do that in a tabletop game, people <laughs> will be like, what's in that door? Why can't I go through that door? What's behind that door? And so it's actually sort of rude to suggest things that you're not planning to follow up on in a way that it would never be within a short story prose format. I think every GM has made the mistake of making the bartender slightly too hot, and then all <laughs> of your characters go chasing off another direction. You're like, that was a one random NPC that was here. This was not a major character. Yeah. This was, interestingly, I discovered that also going from novel to short form, that in novel, people assume that because they're there for immersion, that if you don't include it, you've forgotten about it. And in short story, they're like, well, obviously, you're not going to include everything. So if you've included it, it must be important. It sounds like it's even more so with games. It's just like, oh. In Extreme Dungeon Mastery, uh, both the first and the second editions, uh, Tracy relates the story in his early gaming years of the DM saying, you know, there's a pillar in the middle of the room with unreadable runes on it. And to the DM, unreadable runes means this is flavor. Just skip it. That is not what his players did. And uh, and at some point, 
at some point when you have this happen, you have to be willing to just break the fourth wall and say, I'm sorry, guys, I screwed up. I didn't want anybody to be paying attention to the pillar. Just pretend it's not there. It's nothing. Move on with the adventure. Stop holding the gnome upside down in front of the pillar with a mirror trying to find a... Please, just stop that. We want to go kill monsters now. So another way that I like to think about these differences between formats uh, is... What can I do in this one that I can't do in the others? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I hear a lot about um, interactive fiction, whether it is for a video game or a role-playing game or whatever, is that the players are going to screw it up, that you have a cool story in mind and they're going to mess it up. And that is a way to think about it, but it is not a helpful way to think about it. It's it's a it, an obstacle to deal with, but I think the the other side to that is to say, well, when I am writing a game adventure, I have access to a bunch of extra minds and a bunch of extra collaborators, which gives me as the person writing the adventure to fill it with opportunities for them to contribute. Uh, I did an adventure for a science fiction horror called Grimmer Space, uh, where they go to a planet that kind of, in a very cosmic horror way, started screwing with their memories. and I got to throughout that say, well, okay, uh, point to one of the players and ask them, you know, to tell you about this specific memory that they have, some horrible thing that happened with their family, you know, that sort of thing. So that as they're walking through this world, they are contributing to it and they are adding to their own sense of spooky horror, which is not something you can really do in a novel. The thing that we would always that, that you make me think of right there is audience participation in children's shows. Um, there's kind of two modes, one of which makes me a little cranky, um, and that is, and now everyone's a tree, and so everybody stands up and they're a tree. But it doesn't matter if you don't stand up and you're not a tree. There's no problem with the story. The story continues. That's safer for the 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 actor. But the way that is more impactful is if it makes a difference, and that's uh, clap if you believe in fairies. Where if you do not participate, the story fundamentally breaks, the show fundamentally breaks, and that brings a brings the character, the reader, the, the viewer deeper into it. So what you had to learn to do was to make the audience think that they had a choice and be prepared for both outcomes, which has been um, one of one of my favorite tricks to use in stage, but I also found that when I started writing games, that it was a very, very useful thing that I made it look like people had a choice. Mm-hmm. And um, and then in some cases, there were two possible outcomes you know, or multiple possible outcomes. And in other cases, you know, it's like either choice. All right, I need them to get to this to this building. Which path on the road do you take? Whichever path they take, that's the one that's going to take them to the building for me. Mm-hmm. I also think you you learn, because part of the thing that's fun about writing across formats is what you learn and can bring with you. And one of them is how to sort of breadcrumb your audience into wanting to go the way that you, like, where you've actually prepared all the stuff and you, the building has so many cool things in it and you want them to get there and they want to get to the best content as well. And I think what you learn from that in stories is sometimes 
when you get feedback from a workshop or a critique group, they might say, you know, I was reading your story, but really I was wondering, like, whatever happened to that dude? Mm -hmm. Or like, where, you know, we never found out how the water system works. And they're losing attention. And one thing that I think game writing teaches you a lot about is how to try to keep people's attention in the direction that you kind of want it to go. Because there's nothing more satisfying than when you they choose to go to the building that you wanted them to go to. And it is a free choice, but you sort of let them know that this is the choice that sort of will work really well for them. I think of this as narrative wayfinding, right? Mm. So wayfinding is a design technique that helps signal people where they should be going. So the most basic sign is like, the bathrooms are this way on a big sign. But there's all these other signals that go into designing a space or writing a story that will take your audience from point A to point B, right? And I think a mistake that novelists make sometimes is thinking that, oh, because I've written it this way, they will happily go along with me. But readers have their own agency. And if you run contrary to their expectations, they will get frustrated and stop reading your book, right? So I think this is one of the ways in which learning to write for other media, and whether it's an interactive stage experience, whether it's games, will help you learn to accurately signal the direction in which you want people to go, when to have a heavy hand, when to have a light touch, how to signal this is a horror story, this is an adventure story. If it's a horror story, then you go through the scary door. If it's an adventure story, you go through the nice door or whatever it is, right? You go into the tavern that has, you know, the nice music playing. So I think learning what the signals are, depending on what genre you're in, depending on what story you're trying to tell, sort of locking into the narrative patterns that people expect from fiction will help you build the story that you're trying to build and really like, again, it's an act of hospitality. Make your table inviting for your guests to sit down at and know that I'm getting a seven-course tasting menu or I'm getting a burger and fries. Yeah, I mean, as, as an example of this, I have learned from game writing and from running games so much about how to how to change the reader's attitude about characters, how to make sure that they really hate the villain and they want to hunt them down and kill them, right? That is a skill that works in a game that is also really valuable in a novel, um, how do you make them love a side character? Uh, what are those little tricks? Uh, and so there, there is a lot that can kind of cross-pollinate between different formats and, and so on. You know, one of the pieces that, uh, it, one of the tools that has served me really, really well is uh, the skill I've developed at never throwing anything away and being able to very quickly file the serial numbers off of a thing I've pulled out of the trash in order to put it someplace else. Um, when, you know, when I have a, a chapter or a section that didn't work in a story, but I really liked it, I don't throw it away. It just goes into the boneyard. And, and then remembering, oh, there's that one thing. Pull it out of the boneyard and realize, oh, Nuke this, nuke this, change this, change that pronoun, done. That is so much fun. Yes, I'm lazy. And yes, my boneyard takes up a huge amount of space in my head. But being able to repurpose things in that way is such a valuable skill. Anytime you're, especially for the working writer, because I think it was Aaron who has said, I like money. Well, and we kind of all do. We, at the very least, we like eating indoors and sleeping indoors. Um, 
being able to pay the bills by writing. Yeah, I think also I love that idea of taking things out of the boneyard because sometimes different stories work well in different formats. Occasionally you'll have a story that maybe it's in the boneyard because like that story just isn't well suited to the format that you wanted to write it in, but it'll work somewhere else. So uh, one of the pieces of interactive fiction that I've written was originally a short story that I could not make work, which is about somebody who wakes up with no memory of who they are and they're trying to kind of buy their memories back to try to figure out like what's going on with them. And I wanted the, the reader, the audience member to really feel that sense of loss, but you're in the person's head and it was just very difficult doing it as a game where you literally have to decide which memories you're going to buy from like the Siri, like in this piece of interactive fiction, put the player in the exact position that I wanted them to be in so that they could feel what the character was feeling. And it worked a million times better. I had a very similar thing. My very first novel began as a piece of flash fiction, completely wrong for that. And then I thought, why don't I adapt this for audio theater, which is the perfect thing you want to do for a visually based magic system. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love this. I have a project I've been working on recently with a client that we've gone through four to five iterations of trying to frame it for different media as we're like zeroing in on the thing. I think what we've realized is the world building in this particular thing is so crazy that we're like, I think it needs to be visual. I think people just need to see it and they'll accept it more than trying to describe the scenario. So we've moved from short story to novellas to uh, audio to now it's it's a graphic novel pitch. And it's sort of, it is finally like clarified and locked into place. So sometimes you can have this idea of, you know what kind of story you want to tell, but certain mediums will work better than other for what you're trying to accomplish, right? And, you know, don't be afraid of experimenting. Don't be afraid of, stretching a little bit and seeing, what if I write this as audio? What if I write it as a script? What if I write it as an interactive experience? And I think that can be really enriching and fulfilling for you. And maybe you come back to prose, but like it it can be a way of you locking in on what's truly important to you about the story, what works and what doesn't work, and how do I frame it to make sure that it's landing in the way that I need it to. That feels like a wonderful note to end on. Uh, And we have some homework that... uh, Kind of talks about that a little bit. Erin, what's our homework? Our homework for today is to take something that you're working on, some piece, some story that you're doing, and identify two other formats that might work well for it and think about how you would actually pitch the story differently for those formats. Could be audio, could be a game, could be anything else. How would you tell that story differently in those formats? In the next episode of Writing Excuses, we unpack the frames that surprise us and learn why Dong Wan isn't a fan of epistolary novels. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. 
They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 